tonight's uh, lecture is based on some of her current uh, book writing project. And the lecture is entitled, Come Back When You Found Something True, Reading and Rehearsing the Script in the Scripture. Would you please give a warm Notre Dame welcome to Dr. Anna Carter Florence. I am so grateful to Mike for the invitation and to have this chance to be with all of you. And yes, my 21 and 25 year old sons were incredibly impressed that I'm coming to Notre Dame. I mean, it's the first place they've recognized of <laughs> anything I've ever done. So, you know, thanks for that. Are you all going to be comfortable? A lot of you are perching. It's a, if you want to get up and move your chair into some other place, that's totally fine with me. I just say that off the top. Okay, my sophomore year of college, I signed up for a course called Theater Studies. I thought it was going to be a break in my schedule. I thought we would be reading plays by Shakespeare and watching BBC productions with famous British actors and that it would all be an awesome break from all the history texts I was reading in the library. Well, the first class, um, the first day of class, I almost dropped the course. The professor gave a lecture in which I understood no words. All of them were five syllables and up. And I had to look up everything that he said. But the second day was brilliant. We left the sleek lecture hall. We trooped down the street to this dusty old building big empty room, pulled our chairs into a circle. And there our professor stopped talking about the plays we were reading and he set us loose with them. He said, go back, he said, go rehearse one and come back when you found something true. And then we'll see. We'll read it together and talk about it together and rework it together until we find the truth that the text has to show us. A whole new world opened up for me that year. I learned that theories are important, but some texts need to be practiced. We need to be set loose with them. We need to go rehearse them together and read them together until we find something true. So that's the introduction for what I want to share with you tonight, which is the manuscript, um, part of the manuscript that's in the hands of my editor. I'm waiting for comments from her. As Mike knows, that's a tense moment. I used to be a solitary reader. By that, I mean I read by myself on my own for school or work or pleasure. I would talk about what I'd read with others, whether in class or meetings or even the occasional book group, but those discussions were always after the fact. Reading came first, and when I read, I read alone. Now I am a teacher of a very odd practice, preaching. You would think this would entail a lot of talking or teaching others how to talk, but I have found it is mainly about reading and not solitary reading, reading together as a community, reading scripture inside and out, upside and down with a place at the table for everyone.
Most days, that is what I'm trying to learn and trying to teach, how to be a community that reads scripture together, how to read so we can say something true. It wasn't seminary that taught me to be a community reader, nor was it the church during my growing up years. It was my time in theater studies. At the precise moment when I was supposed to be honing and perfecting my solitary reading skills, I stumbled into a class that didn't require them. And in fact, we were asked to check those skills at the door. Instead, our professor invited us to read in some new ways. Not alone, together. Not once, again and again. Not to explain or portray the text in some definitive version, but to find something true alongside other true discoveries. It was reading as community and it formed community. It made us hungry for the text and the joy of showing one another all that the text could say. Years later, I walked into my first preaching class and did a double take. Wasn't this community reading too? We were asked, we were given a biblical text. We were sent out to read it together again and again. We were asked to come back and show one another all that the text could say. The goal was not to preach the definitive sermon, it was to proclaim something true from a living word that we could trace in our reading but could hardly speak without stammering. So we tried in every class and we got close and we fell short and it made us hungry for that text and the joy of showing one another all that our scriptural text can say. This is a joy I think that is too good to keep in a preaching only, preachers only classroom. It's a gift I think all of us as Christians are meant to share. And so is proclamation, speaking something true. And I think new ways of reading can help us. So if you are hungry to encounter scripture and meet the living word, you're in good company. A lot of us these days, people of faith, people with doubts, dedicated churchgoers, those who are seeking, and even preachers are hungry these days. We're craving nourishment that will sustain us, wisdom that will guide us, community that will walk with us along the way. We yearn for justice for God's people, a peace that passes all understanding. As the Greeks said to Philip, we want to see Jesus. And since scripture is a reliable place to search, and in my tradition, we say sola scriptura, meaning for us, it's the first and best place, we are eager to read it. We're eager to follow in the way of gospel. The problem is that many of us are reading on our own, and that can be slow going. Slow enough to make you think you aren't getting anywhere, and it would be better to leave the reading to the professionals and the speaking to the preachers, which in a number of cases is exactly what has happened. It's not that we think preachers are the only ones qualified to read and speak about scripture. You know this better than Protestants. In fact, our theology tells us just the opposite. The priesthood of all believers, if I can truck in a phrase from my, my tradition, the priesthood of all believers opens the task of proclamation to everyone, but solitary readers 
are at greater risk of dropping out of that priesthood. And a lot of us, I think preachers included, are in the solitary habit. That habit can lead to some unhealthy patterns. We may have all the elements that make for excellent readers. We have a great book, the invitation, to, uh, the motivation to tackle it, the theological mandate to do it. But we need some more flexible reading strategies that will lower the dropout statistics because at the moment, a lot of us are hungry and a little bored with our reading and not sure what to do next. We might as well be like teenagers at lunchtime who open a well-stocked refrigerator, survey the contents, turn to you accusingly, and announce there is nothing to eat. Of course, there's plenty to eat. What the teenagers are telling you is, number one, what's ever in the fridge is in a whole foods state and needs to be cooked before it can be eaten. Two, they don't really know what to cook or how to cook it. And three, rather than learn, they would really like you to do it for them. Some parents take on that role and never give it up. But if you want your teenagers to ever leave home and fend for themselves, eventually you have to show them that the pound of hamburger and the green pepper staring at them from the third shelf really can become a lovely spaghetti sauce if you saute them with some onion and garlic and olive oil and herbs and tomatoes. Otherwise, you end up with a houseful of entitlement-driven young adults who, who believe, truly, that your primary purpose in life is to wait on them. A faith community that lets its people drop out of their calling to read and speak about scripture will soon be sitting on the best-stocked refrigerator in the universe that no one but the preacher can use. And it won't be locked and hidden away in a lot of churches this incredibly stocked larder that is our scripture. In a lot of churches, it's right there at the center of everything. You can find a refrigerator in every pew. So when the people wander in hungry, open the door, stare at the contents, surprise, it's not clear to them how Leviticus could ever be nourishing, let alone appetizing, let alone dinner. They don't have any idea of where to start, except that it involves a lot of chopping, apparently. And then the refrain sounds. There's nothing to eat at our church. We're hungry. We want a sermon. Not the Good Samaritan. Again, we're tired of that one. Make us something we like. And when the preacher capitulates, you are often running with another generation of entitlement-driven folk who are always hungry, always hanging around the fridge, and who think the preacher's primary purpose in life is to wait on them. Worst of all, they never leave. They don't know how to fend for themselves to let scripture be their daily bread. All they can do is invite their friends back to your place and let you feed them, which is evangelism, I guess. You can see that it can get to be a vicious cycle. Hungry people, exhausted preacher, all that spaghetti sauce to cook. But the means to addressing it is totally within our capability. As the United Nations keeps reminding us every year, hunger is the number one killer on the planet, and not because there isn't enough food for everyone. There is. We simply lack the will to change. We have to learn how to prepare and distribute the food that we have, and we must do this with scripture too. The survival of the planet, 
I really think depends on it because hunger of the body and hunger of the spirit will intertwine to devour our species. So here's what I propose. Invite the dropouts back to the kitchen. Release the wait staff. Tie on the aprons and open that gorgeously stocked scriptural fridge and together learn how to prepare what's in it. Learn to be community readers as well as solitary readers so we can feed ourselves and others. Also, take a cue from theater studies. Some texts need to be practiced as well as studied and we need to be set loose with them. So set aside time when we can stop talking about scripture and learn how to live as those who have been set loose with it. Now I know this may sound out of sequence. Usually we talk about setting the biblical text loose rather than ourselves with it, and certainly that's true. Scripture is wild and free, indomitable, inscrutable, intractable, irrepressible. Who said all those adjectives, Mike? Walter Brueggemann, right? Everything with five syllables and all those others that he said. And so aptly strings together to remind us of this book that we are dealing with. As one of my students remarked in a rather dazed way after he read scripture from the pulpit for the very first time, whoa, something happens when you're up there. He was right. The biblical text is a wild thing and it takes us where the wild things are. We speak the words and as Barbara Brown Taylor says, they are loose in the room. We have no idea what will happen or where it will take us except that wherever it is won't look like anything we know. It is the wild and free vision of God's reign breaking its way in. You know, Maurice Sendak may not have realized he was writing the perfect description of our biblical interpretive task when he wrote that classic children's book that I hope a lot of you grew up with, Where the Wild Things Are. But Sendak was. The perfect call to worship might even be this, let the wild rumpus start. But a companion move needs to happen for any wild rumpus to begin, and that is that we have to be let loose. We have to put on wolf suits like young Max did. How many of you read Where the Wild Things Are? Oh, please, yes, I hope so. Go out and buy it immediately if you haven't. It's a children's book. You can find it in the library. We have to put on wolf suits like young Max, sail away to where the wild things are, which is really another way of saying we need reading space sometimes where we can make mischief of one sort or another with the text. And this could mean a departure from Bible study as we often know it. I once met a man in South Carolina who assured me, oh, I could never go to Bible study at my church. I don't know any of the answers. That man was an intelligent, confident, thoughtful person, and he was afraid to go to a Bible study at his rather progressive church because it exposed his lack of knowledge. Let me add that his congregation had one of the best church educators in the business. It wasn't that she wasn't doing her job. But for this man, Bible study looked like a school that is teaching to a test. Facts, figures, 
themes, doctrines, no church person left behind. He believed himself to be biblically illiterate, and for him, that was something shameful, something to hide. And his church offered no other way to gather around scripture, so he has slipped through the cracks. And as a nifty side effect, is completely dependent on his preacher to explain the text to him every week, which I am sorry to say this preacher really likes doing and isn't about to give up. Once the cycle of power and dependency starts, it's really hard to break. So I wonder if it's time for another move entirely. Our scripture encounters us in so many ways. It is a storehouse of knowledge. It is a source book of wisdom. It is the face of Christ. It is also art, poetry, proverb, novella, epistle, epic, memoir, farce, myth. Our scripture is art in all of its sacred witnessing forms. And when you interact with art, you have to take a different approach. There is a time to talk about it, and then there is a time to be set free with it, to explore where it takes you and the truth that it might show you. Here's what I've learned from my work with groups of scripture readers, lay people, clergy alike. When we interact, interact with scripture as art, it frees something in us, some need to explain it or solve it, or even, as the poet Billy Collins put it, torture a confession out of it, which is the preacher's Saturday night special. When we interact with scripture as art, we do much better at putting on our wolf suits and making mischief with the text because we're less self-conscious, less burdened about the outcome. We can switch gears for a little while, set aside all the other ways we read scripture, the other good ways we read scripture, and be open to something new. And here's something else I've learned. When the people of God read scripture together in a let loose, wild, rumpus sort of way, with no other purpose than to simply speak and listen to the words that are written. The same thing happens every time we discover the script in the scripture. We see that our biblical text is a collection of scripts that God has given us to rehearse until something true emerges. And we are a repertory church. A repertory company is a small band of actors, you, must, you probably know this, who perform together regularly. They get to know one another, they build trust, they grow over time, they move into different roles. Because they live in the same area, they put down roots. They grow older together, they're in and out of each other's lives. No one can afford to behave like an out-of-town star because this is ensemble work. Stars are constantly changing the subject to themselves. Ensemble players don't need to do that. They move in and out of the light and the shadows in roles, big and small, because what they are most concerned about finding is something true to say together with this script. And they know it requires each one of them to do the hard work of being utterly honest. When my husband and I lived in Minneapolis, we went regularly. Anybody from Minneapolis here? 
That's all right. Oh, yes? Did we, did we? Okay. A few Minnesotans. Um, we went regularly to the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which is a professional repertory company, gloriously talented. Every play was worth seeing, and some of them imported really big names for the lead roles. But the unexpected pleasure of those years was observing how the same group of actors in the residential company grew over time. They appeared in each play in a different role. We had the fun of watching them pop up every few months as entirely new characters, so well camouflaged that you really had to pay attention to spot them. No one was ever typecast. An actor who played the king in one production might be the butler in the next, and each role provided a different challenge. The minor roles were often more absorbing to watch and I expect to play. And through it all, we saw the amazing trust that these actors had for one another. It allowed them to take on terribly difficult roles, often in tough performing circumstances, like presenting three of Shakespeare's history plays in a single day. That was an amazing time. A repertory company is such a powerful witness of what it means to work together on a common vision over the long haul. I have to say, I learned this the hard way. When my college classmates and I got our first assignment from our professor, it was to go and rehearse a scene from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. We thought, huh, we know how to do this. Actually, what each of us was thinking was, I know how to work together. What it means is I get the plot down, I figure out my character's motives, I speak the words clearly, I pronounce them correctly, and most of all, I show the professor that I have talent with a dazzling new take on a classic role. And off we went in groups of four to do exactly that. And it didn't work. We were rehearsing together, but we were also trying to outdo one another. We had no idea what ensemble was, no clue that it could be more than mowing each other down with our interpretive brilliance, and no awareness that our star-struck insti instincts was gonna doom, we're gonna doom this kind of work from the outset. Our academic training had formed us to be solitary readers in competition with each other, rather than a community of readers that was united in purpose. Only when our very patient professor received what we'd brought to class and then patiently reworked it with us did we realize that what we were dealing with was something so much bigger than one person's talent or another person's cleverness. The truth wasn't about us. It came through us. It came through the words of the script that we spoke. But only if our goal was to live in it rather than occupy and conquer it. Only if we had a common vision over the long haul. In time, our class stopped looking like a room full of scrabbling, aspiring stars, and we began working together as a group. We became what our professor was gently guiding us toward, a little repertory company. And then something else happened. We stopped arguing about whose interpretation was the best in all the land. We got over the competitiveness that ran between us bone deep. In its place, we noticed some strange new growth, 
appreciation, respect, trust, restraint, a generosity of spirit which flowed into hospitality and even grace. We saw that the script is so deep that there is always another way to play it and always another way to read it. And the different casts of characters can show you different sides of the scene. And you don't have to decide which one was right or better or even definitive, just which moments were true. And the truth really is a current that we recognize when we are in it. And that it doesn't matter what the source of that current is, whether it came from your performance or someone else's, the joy and the momentum you feel is the same. And that any scene can stay fresh over and over as long as you're aiming for truth and not innovation. And that some scenes may not be ours to play right now, but will be later when life has its way with us. <coughs> and that there is beauty in that waiting, and that although the script is a given and you can't change the words, you can always change the way you play it, which in turn can change everything. A repertory company engenders this kind of learning. It isn't a perfect body, nor can it ever be, as my little theater studies class so aptly illustrates. You only had to take one look at us to know it. We were human, we were 19, our primary mode of transport was any streetcar named Desire, and it was the 80s, big hair, big egos. Yet even our imperfect band of players experienced moments of truth, more moments than we had any right or reason to expect. Scenes would unfold, and with them a glimpse of the beloved community. The plays of August Wilson, Anton Chekhov, Arthur Miller, Carol Churchill, they contained beautiful and terrible visions of our humanity. We saw the worlds that we settle for, and the worlds that might be, and how we could choose a life that mattered. We saw truth shining through those scripts and our efforts to live in them. And if it's possible in a ragtag body like that, then I wonder what might be possible in a repertory church. The word needs a body. It wants to speak through more than one preacher and interpreter. It wants to speak through every member of the body because that's the purpose of all our reading and interpreting of scripture, to speak of God, to tell what we've seen and what we believe about what God is doing right now to liberate creation and set captives free, to be fully awake and alive in the script. That's what a priesthood of all readers and believers looks like, could look like when we read together, and we can. When the body of Christ is a repertory church versed in the script that is scripture, we become community readers for the sake of the world. So the best metaphor I know for a wide open, let's change gears sort of reading is rehearsal. When we read scripture as a community, we are doing the same thing that musicians do at band practice, singers do at choir practice, actors do in rehearsal, going through the script and practicing ways to play it, reading the score, learning the notes, 
running the lines, building a character, setting a rhythm, layering beats. Rehearsal is a place to experiment, to try out many possible interpretations of a text, and then we can decide how we want to perform it. The biblical text offers us more scripts than we could ever rehearse in one lifetime. Every text comes with an invitation to read it and then to play it. And the great thing about rehearsal is you don't even need much to do it. It's free, it's simple, easily adaptable to any context, and in my view, it only needs four moves. You get together, you read the text, you rehearse it, and you sift through the possibilities and then decide what you're going to speak. You guys still with me? Because I'm going to move to the next. You all right? Everybody? Okay. You know, in the South, they sort of go, mmm, or, you know, they kind of do this stuff back at you. But I realize I'm in Indiana, so it's all right. So, yeah. Um, so for me, the heart of rehearsal is a process that I call reading the verbs, and that's what I want to lead into right now. The idea for reading the verbs in the biblical text as a way of rehearsal came to me one day when I was reading scripture, playing around with the grammatical parts of speech, because yes, I was trying to write a sermon, yet no, I was getting nowhere, yes, I was getting nowhere, and of course, when you're getting nowhere, you immediately start to count grammatical parts of speech, because that's going to help, right? <laughs> so there I was, counting nouns, verbs, adjectives, hoping, 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 waiting for the moment when a sermon was going to appear, which it didn't, but then I saw something else that caught my attention. If you take a biblical text, and ask a group to count all the nouns, the verbs, and the adjectives in the passage, what you're going to find is a basic ratio. The number of nouns and verbs will be roughly equivalent, and the number of adjectives will be a small fraction of that, say a tenth. Okay, what this ratio tells us first is that scripture is good writing. Nouns and verbs predominate, and adjectives are used very sparingly, which is exactly what your high school English teacher told you when you were learning how to write an essay in clear expository prose. The poet Mary Oliver puts it a step further for her poetry students. She says, in your poems, adjectives are worth five cents. Verbs are worth 50 cents. It's another way of saying that language needs to move. It has to go somewhere. It can't just sit around idling and preening its descriptive feathers. And this is what the language of scripture does. It moves. It is concerned with concrete actions. It prefers to ask, what then shall we do, rather than, so how do you feel about that? And this, in turn, is a really important hermeneutical clue for us to notice how the language of scripture shapes, uh, how the language of, the, of scripture, the biblical text, sh shapes the script, and then us in turn. But you'll notice that my term for, the re for a rehearsal process of reading scripture together, my term is reading the verbs rather than reading the nouns. This is because I've observed that when we enter scripture nouns first, our conversation gets tends to get sidetracked. The nouns in the biblical text are just so distractingly not of our world. 
There are cubits and shekels, arcs, archangels, man manna, mandrakes, pharaoh, and flesh pots. There are cherubim and nephilim, Pharisees and Philistines, Samaritans, Syrophoenicians, and divided tongues of fire. And the book of Revelation features a seven-horned, seven-eyed, blood-soaked lamb, which under no circumstances should mix with the other lambs and sheep and cow, cows in the Christmas pageant. We do not meet many of these biblical nouns in our neighborhoods, ever. So every time we turn around, we have to explain one of them. It's a constant reminder that we are reading about a galaxy far, far away. And that, in turn, lets us keep our distance from the text. The distance hobbles us in a lot of ways. One is that when we enter scripture nouns first, we spend a lot of time translating. The job before us appears to be one of transport, right? How to take all these, how to airlift all these strange biblical nouns to our own contexts, connect the dots to a doctrine, a strange and feat which often requires some fast talking and complicated rigging. Meanwhile, we get to zip back and forth between worlds like little time travelers. The text stays in its own orbit way out there in the galaxy, we get to live in the real world at a safe distance. And the nouns that we do unload and unpack look fine in a museum, but they never quite fit in our living rooms. When we read scripture nouns first, we also spend a lot of time dissociating. We get to decide which nouns we're going to read literally and which ones we aren't. We get to decide which plots we want to keep away from and which ones are about us and so we can read. We get to decide which stories are about us and our people and which ones aren't, which themes we want to take up. And that, in turn, leads to a chopping up of the text left and right, hacking off choice pieces we like, leaving out bits we don't, and engaging in a textual violence that we never intended. And maybe we can't help it being nouns ourselves. This compulsion to create distance, pick fights and dissociate from other nouns that don't look like us, which perhaps a biological anthropologist or xenophobia expert could explain. But reading scripture nouns first really does result in some strange behavior. If you have ever had to listen to a sermon on Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, that spent 15 minutes describing housing practices in ancient Israel, instead of plunging straight into the verbs that sprint through that story, verbs like paralyze, forgive, stand up, take your mat, and walk, then you know exactly what I mean. Nouns are the parts of speech that allow us to isolate ourselves, draw a boundary, designate an other, and even avert our eyes if we didn't want to look, if we don't want to look at what happens next. Verbs, though. Verbs are different. We all have verbs. The same ones, actually. You and I share verbs with Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Miriam and Ruth and Naomi. We share verbs with Mary and Joseph, and James, and Peter, and John, and Martha, and Lydia, and Paul. And we even share verbs with Jesus, 
which does appear to be the whole point of incarnation, doesn't it? That God came to share our verbs. The word became one of us and lived among us. Because apparently even God thought the best way to reach us was to meet us verb for verb and then raise us and change the whole game. Verbs are cross-cultural and they open up a space that can be occupied by a lot of subjects, ourselves included. You and I may not want to have much in common with Cain or Caiaphas or Judas or Jezebel, but we, they, they have verbs that we know, verbs we've chosen for ourselves. We may wish we hadn't, but we have. And likewise, Jesus in his ministry is constantly turning the tables on us about certain nouns, like sinners, tax collectors, scribes, Pharisees, nouns that, uh, that turning the tables on us about certain nouns and the verbs that we expect that they will take. Most often, you've noticed, it is the sinner who falls down, confesses, loves, and thanks, rather than the righteous person, which scrambles our assumptions about the cast, us and them, and the plot, or the ending. Enter scripture verbs first, and immediately you are out of the transport business. There is no distant galaxy, there is nothing to translate, in fact, the verbs you meet are as fresh as if you had picked them in your own backyard. You want to linger over them, turn them over and over in your hands, take them out for a spin. But it is always the other way around. The verbs take us out for a spin and a whirl and a really fast drive. It is hard to keep arguing about what scripture means when the verbs keep showing us who we are. If you're looking for a way to make scripture relevant by yourself or with your people, start reading the verbs. You will have more relevance on your hands than you know what to do with. You will see yourself everywhere in verbs you have played. It is the fastest way to make a script out of scripture that I know. And once we have the script in front of us, then we can rehearse it to find something true. Okay, I want to try this with two verses, a very familiar text from Genesis 3 that we know, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I'm just going to take two verses, all right? You guys still okay? All right. This is Genesis 3, verse, yeah, thank you. Southerners, stepping up, rise up, yep. Okay, verses 7 and 8, they, they, they read this way. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's just two verses. There are eight verbs in these verses were opened, knew, were, sowed, made, heard, walking, and hid. Eight verbs. So what happens if we take each verb for a minute and reflect on it? So here's what I came up with. First verb, were opened. 
were opened. The first verb belongs to Adam and Eve. The eyes of both were opened. And it is a passive voice rather than active. The passive voice mean it, the passive voice is aptly named. It means you just sat there like a lump while the verb happened to you. And while I can think of circumstances where this kind of inertia might be nice, I came home, for example, or this would be nice, if I came home to find the floors were swept, the dishes were washed, the bills were paid, most of us actually appreciate a little more involvement when it comes to choosing and enacting our own verbs. I would rather open my own mouth, files, options, and front door, for example, than to discover that they were opened. If my day has to start early, I would rather my eyes were opened by an alarm clock at 6 a.m. that I set myself rather than a bout of insomnia that began four hours earlier. But there are deeper things to think about. When I can open my own eyes, I control my field of perceptivity. I have the option to see what I want to see and maybe exactly what I want to see. And that may not be enough. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. And that tells us that an active verb for them was not enough. They needed a passive verb intervention in order to see what they needed to see. So something else took over. It literally made them look, perhaps by reaching across and prying their eyelids open. And if you think this is easy to do, try it on a friend. I won't ask you to do this now, but try it sometime. To Take someone's cheeks, turn their head, and physically point them in the direction you want them to look and pry open their eyelids while they simultaneously wriggle out of your grasp and squint their eyes shut. It's like trying to wrestle a toddler into a snowsuit. You're going to be hard pressed to do it if she doesn't want to cooperate. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, and that is an impressive bit of choreography. But then epiphanies flashes of insight often are. It can take a fair amount of maneuvering to make us open our eyes. It can even take a shock, shock to the system. When was the last time your eyes were opened? It might have been in a moment of national turmoil and unrest. Perhaps your eyes were opened to the lived reality of others who were different from you. It might have been in a time of personal crisis. Perhaps your eyes were opened to hard facts about yourself or those you love. Whatever it was, wherever it was, it probably came with realizations that were painful to see and impossible to ignore. Adam and, Eve's, Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they'd been instructed not to eat, and their eyes were opened. The passive verb demands an active response, no more gazing into the distance, seeing the world as you want it to be. Time to see things as they really are. Time for some new verbs. So here are the second and third, new and were. Flashes of insight are like flash floods. The knowledge comes suddenly without any warning. One moment you're looking at a clear blue sky, the next moment you're standing in water up to your knees trying to absorb the new landscape. For Adam and Eve, the flash of insight was a startling re revelation. They were naked and always had been, and now they knew. The verb knew doesn't leave much room for speculation. They didn't suppose 
or wonder or guess or imagine. They didn't close their eyes, count to 10, and wish for a different outcome. They knew then and there without a shadow of a doubt. The evidence was right before their eyes. And once you know, there is no going back. As I recently learned at a car rental agency when I tried to exit through the returns only lane and punctured all my tires. Once you know, you can only move forward, take what you know and drive on with courage because the road of denial won't even get you out of the parking garage. What Adam and Eve knew quite definitively was that an adjective they had never noticed before had apparently been theirs all along, naked. They were naked. They were. And not just in the morning, after a shower, and before they got dressed. Not just on a lark, after a morning dip, without bathing suits. They were naked all the time in public, in front of God and everybody, or at least all the animals. And it was not a joke or a fairy tale or a slapstick scene in which the hero's clothes are stolen off the dock. It was a deep loss, actually. It was an appalling truth. They had thought that they were covered, and they were not. They had thought they were protected, and they were not. They were naked, laid bare, stripped down, exposed, and vulnerable. It was devastating, not to mention humiliating. And the irony to have your eyes open to the fact that everyone can see you, and even through you, and you have been living for years in front of a window with no shades. This moment in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve knew that they were naked has inspired more works of art than almost any other scene in scripture, crucifixion and nativity probably accepting. Many of those works show a quaintly innocent couple, modest and graceful, holding fig leaves in appropriate places. Their newly discovered adjective appears to be causing them only vague embarrassment. I think there's more to the picture. These two knew that they were naked, and it was a sucker punch of a revelation. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel fresco captures the moment, but so does Edvard, Edvard Munch's painting, The Scream, you know? The fourth and fifth verbs, sewed and made. So the next two verbs go together as a kind of crisis management plan. What do you do when your eyes are opened? and you know that you are naked, you get to work on the cover-up. You stitch up a story that you hope will hold. And as this one illustrates, you hope there is more at hand to stitch with than fig leaves. Cover-ups take some effort. This is as true literally as it is figuratively, which my students and I learned on the day I brought needles, thread, and a big basket of fig leaves from my backyard to class so that we could read and reenact the text. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Our experiment showed us a few things. If you are serious about concealment, it takes about an hour to sew a loincloth, longer if you have never held a needle. Design matters. So do the materials, and leaves are not a good choice for vulnerable areas. For one thing, they wilt in very short order. For another, they itch. By the time you have finished sewing, you will have a limp and ineffectual little green mat that will fall apart at the first good tug. In short, no cover-up at all. 
If you're going to go to all that trouble, we said to ourselves in disgust, surveying the sad results of a whole afternoon's labor, you would do better with animal hides, something durable that might actually last longer than a few minutes. But sewing fig leaves, that is just a waste of time and energy and a ridiculous idea in the first place. Sometimes it takes a literal reenactment of the verbs to show you what is really going on. In this text, it's the fig leaves that get all the attention, as nouns do. Those fig leaves are glossy, they're showy, provocatively placed, and so well known, they've become their own figure of speech. A fig leaf is a cover-up for something embarrassing or awkward. But the text gives us a verb to go with fig leaves. And that takes the image in a totally different direction. You can cover yourself, however inadvisably, advisedly, with fig leaves, and it'll carry you for a few uncomfortable, itchy minutes. But to sew fig leaves so you can make loincloths is something else again. It shows us the futility and the absurdity of the whole concealment enterprise. Human beings will go to such lengths to cover up their fear and their shame that they will attempt ridiculously impossible things, sewing fig leaves. You might as well try to teach ants to turn cartwheels. It is that ludicrous. It is that pointless. The image is supposed to make you burst into laughter and then, on second look, into tears. They sewed fig leaves. That is a comic, cosmic mismatch of verb and noun. You can sew hides, but not leaves. You can make a wreath of those leaves, but not loincloths. At the heart of this story is the freedom God gives human beings to figure out which verbs are theirs and which nouns those verbs can take. Cover up and mistakes, for example. Hide from and God. Those are pairings that are never going to work, ever, in the end. But human beings are going to try. So here's six and seven. Heard and walking. The next two verbs happen simultaneously. No sooner have Adam and Eve donned their botanical outfits than they realize they have company. They don't need to ask who it is. The footsteps are all too familiar. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. You know, it might have been a comforting sound on any other night. After all, God isn't running or stomping or marching in heavy boots. God isn't searching from house to house, banging on doors. God is just walking. Maybe because it's what God does in the evening. God takes a little stroll, looks at the garden, waters the flowers. On any other night, Adam and Eve might have been glad to hear the sound of those footsteps. They might have poured a few glasses of iced tea, brought some lawn chairs out to the garden, where they could all sit down after their walk, catch up on the news of the day. Only it wasn't any other night, and the sound wasn't comforting. When the news you have to share isn't news you want to tell, familiar footsteps and rituals hold no promise of pleasure. They just Hammer home what you're going to have to do eventually, which is to explain your new adjective, naked, the new clothes, 
fig leaves and why you were talking to that snake in the first place. And the scene that is coming will feature a lot of how could yous and why would yous about your woeful lack of judgment and consorting with reptiles. And in the end, you will wish you had never heard the word fruit. So the footsteps are far from reassuring. To the contrary, they're like getting a smoking howler from Mrs. Weasley right in this hall of Hogwarts. They signal that the explosion is imminent. They give you a few frozen seconds to contemplate it and no more. And here's the last verb, hid. The last verb in the sequence is a moment of reckoning. Adam and Eve had a decision to make and only a split second in which to make it. God is on the move, coming their way, and what are they gonna do? Will they step up, tell the truth about all that has happened? Will they describe their part in it from the first big mistake to the string of verbs that followed? And will they do it before the evidence speaks for itself, which it will surely do as soon as God sees their faces and their fig leaves? In an ideal world, yes, of course they would do that. They would step out in faith, confident that their most exposed selves would be met with love. They would know in their bones, faith speaks louder than fear. And in our garden, shame has no place. And telling the truth would be as natural to them as breathing. They would come out and confess with real remorse and then go forth having learned from it. But this is not an ideal world. Something has broken or is broken and so the cover-up continues. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice that these two aren't bothering with fig leaves anymore. Loincloths only cover bits and pieces. Now they want an invisibility cloak. They want to disappear completely into the trees so that nothing about themselves and their story can be seen at all. If they could, they would melt into the background like chameleons, join a witness, witness protection program, begin a life, a new life in another garden miles away. But since those options are physically impossible, they do the next best thing, which is theologically impossible. They hide. They hide from God. There are a lot of things we could say about hiding, whether it be from God or one another, but perhaps the most important thing to say is, and the most honest, is that we all do it, or try anyway. Hiding is a reflexive human impulse. We hide what we really think. We hide who we really are. We hide what we've really done or left undone. And we hide what the world has done to us out of fear and shame. It isn't easy. There are masks to wear, personas to adopt with stiff upper lips and brave faces. But those are just like fig leaves in the end. They wither and fade, they slip and fall, and then there's nothing left for it but to run for the trees. Adam and Eve hid from God. And one of the most beautiful things to me about this story is that God does not abandon them there. God doesn't leave them in miserable isolation or search them out and drag them from their hiding place. God, what's God's word? calls them out. Where are you? 
God asks in the next verse, giving Adam and Eve a chance to come out from their hiding place by themselves. It's almost like watching a game of hide and seek with a two-year-old. The parent pretending not to see little arms and legs sticking out from behind the cabinet, calling out for the sake of the game and a two-year-old's dignity. Where are you? Come on now, where are you hiding? I should probably say at this juncture that if you were looking to keep some distance from yourself and the text, this text, reading the verbs is not the way to go. You would be better off with historical criticism or one of its robust offspring, source criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism, etc., any of which is going to offer you a good read at a cruising altitude of 39,000 feet. You will not be required to admit prior knowledge of any verb. You will not have to rehearse or play any of them. You can simply admire the view and go home. But if you're looking for more than a flyover, reading the verbs will keep your feet on the ground. The text will become a script that invites you in. It'll have verb sequences you recognize and many you have played, and that makes the script one you already know at really close range. This may not seem like good news at first. Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8, two little verses, hands us a fearsome sequence of verbs. Were opened, knew, were, sowed, made, heard, walking, hid. They might as well be dominoes. You tap one and the rest of them follow. We know those verbs. We've lived those verbs. Reading them is like being expelled all over again from some fresh, pure place where trust is never broken and people you love are never hurt and you can stand before God with a clean heart. It is a painful experience to read this text and all those distancing moves that we make, like dismissing the story as a primeval myth, they don't do anything to shield us. A primeval myth is still a script. It's the best of its kind, actually. Myth just means the story is brilliant, and primeval just means it's had a really long run since everyone, everyone has gotten to play it. The good news is that when we read the script in the scripture, we have a chance to do more than just relive our own verbs. We can change the subject from ourselves to God, and only now are we ready to talk as a repertory church about the truth that we see in the script. Now we're ready to tell you what we believe about a God who will let us choose our own verbs and then enact with us this elaborate performance of hide and seek with fig leaves, of cowering and crouching in thickets of shame until we can summon the courage to say, here I am, I'm here, I'm here. The Repertory Church needs to rehearse a text like that in freedom and with focus so that we can see what the script shows us about the God that we worship and the God that we preach. Everything we need to do it is right at hand. The text, the verbs, space, the interpretive body, and the theological imperative which tells us that we are not the light but we were sent to bear witness to the light, the light that is coming into the world full of grace and truth. Thanks.
much a lot longer than i meant